Welcome to Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. Sharon has a passion for Scripture that will motivate and challenge you to immerse yourself in God's Word and apply His message to your everyday life. Visit SeekingTruth.net to learn more about bringing Seeking Truth to your parish or to become an online learner. Today, Sharon presents Part 1 of the Gospel of Luke, Chapter 11. And now, Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. This is the Lord's Prayer in this chapter, and Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he ceased, one of the disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples, referring back to John the Baptist, and he had his own disciples, and John had taught them how to pray. Can you teach us how to do it? He's referring to Luke 5 when they said to Jesus, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers. And so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. Well, they're seeing that when he's been going off to these places, these certain places and communing with the Father, and they want to know how to do it. So they say, Lord, Lord, teach us to pray. They have a desire to, they see him. They want to do what he's doing. They want more because they see him in union with the father. And they're thinking, what fuels this guy? Where does he get his energy? What, what is he doing when he does that? So they had a desire to be set aflame like him. Lord, teach us to pray. And so we asked too, Lord, teach me to pray. It's not easy to pray. I don't know if any of y'all struggle in prayer, but it's something learned. There's a whole section about prayer in the Catechism of the Catholic Church, and there's a section on the Lord's Prayer, and it says at 2767, this indivisible gift of the Lord's words and of the Holy Spirit who gives life to them in the hearts of believers has been received and lived by the church from the beginning. The first communities prayed the Lord's Prayer three times a day in place of the 18 benedictions customary in Jewish piety. So, of course, I wanted to know, what were the 18 benedictions that they used to pray, that the, the Lord's Prayer replaced? And so I looked up the 18 benedictions. They were morning, noon, night, morning, noon, night, 18 benedictions, three times a day. It's a Jewish prayer obligation to pray three times a day, established by Ezra, codified in the Talmud, fulfilled by reciting the Amidah, also called the Tesalah or the 18 benedictions. It starts with praise, three blessings of praise, then petitions, 12 petitions, six personal petitions, six communal petitions, and then thanksgiving, three blessings of thanks. And today they still pray the Amidah, that God would accept our prayers as were the animal sacrifices of old. Because now there's no more temple. So there's no more way they can do animal sacrifices to Jews. There's no temple. So they can't do what's prescribed in the Torah because there's no temple. So they pray instead. And the Amidah is the core of every Jewish worship service. And it's therefore called the prayer. And it literally means, Amidah means standing. It's the standing prayer. And maybe you've seen people rocking at the wall. It's 18 blessings that they recite while standing. So it's not as if the disciples had never prayed before. They knew how to pray the Jewish prayers. But they say, Lord, teach us to pray like you do. So he's going to change it from 18 blessings to seven petitions that will encapsulate everything. It's the perfect prayer, the Lord's Prayer. Seven petitions, a perfection of petitions. And they also would pray the Shema, the Jewish evening and morning prayer. It's from Deuteronomy 6. Here, O Israel, the Lord our God is how many? Is one. They didn't know about a trinity. The Lord our God is one. 
And so they would do the 18 benedictions, the Shema prayers, morning, noon, and night. So a new understanding of Shema, the Lord our God is one, and Christians would do in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, but he's one God, but he's in three persons. That was all new. Matthew 28, he gives his great final commission to go baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And the Jews didn't know that. They didn't know he was three persons. They knew God was one, not three, but he's both. He's three in one. And so the Lord's Prayer will become the perfect prayer, the Lord's own prayer, and it will replace the 18 benedictions. And it becomes part of our greatest prayer in the Catholic Church is the Mass. The highest prayer of the Catholic Church is the Mass, and it incorporates the Lord's prayer into the liturgy of the church right before the transubstantiation, right before we get into the Eucharistic prayer. So we know the Mass is prefigured in Luke 24, the road to Emmaus. Christ is offering Mass. It's a skeletal form of Mass. The Didache will come later as the Holy Spirit illuminates everything after Pentecost. But the walk to Emmaus has the liturgy of the word, the liturgy of the Eucharist. He breaks the bread. They recognize him. It's bread, blessed, broken, and shared. That's the formula. He's going to be, after the resurrection, he's sticking around 40 days, right? In that 40 days, he's going to teach them a lot of things. One of them is about the Trinity and how to baptize and how to say mass. In Acts 1, all these with one accord devoted themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brethren. And they're waiting from the time he ascends. They're waiting They're told to just stay and wait and pray, and they'll do that for nine days. That's the first novena to the Holy Spirit. They're waiting for nine days praying, and on the 10th day, the Holy Spirit comes. And so that's the first novena, waiting and praying for nine days, all together after he ascends back to the right hand of the Father. On the 10th day, following the ascension, it's also the 50th day from the resurrection, Pente in Greek, Pentecost. So it's jubilation day. It's the gift. It's the gift. It's the gift. It's the gift. It's the Holy Spirit. So those who received his word were baptized. They added 3,000 souls that day. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. It's an apostolic church to the fellowship and the breaking of the bread, that's the mass, and the prayers. So the breaking of the bread and the prayers is the mass, the highest form of prayer in the church, and it includes the Our Father. The Catechism says this, I love this, so listen carefully and read it yourself, 1085. The Liturgy of the Church. It is principally his own paschal mystery that Christ signifies and makes present. During his earthly life, Jesus announced his paschal mystery by his teaching and anticipated it in his actions. When his hour comes, he lives out the unique event of history, which does not pass away. Jesus dies, is buried, rises from the dead, and is seated at the right hand of the Father once for all. That's Hebrews 7.27. His Paschal mystery is a real event that occurred in our history, but it is unique. All other historical events happen once, and then they pass away, swallowed up in the past. But the Paschal mystery of Christ, by contrast, cannot remain only in the past, because by his death, he destroyed death. And all that Christ is, all that he did and suffered for all men participates in the divine eternity and so transcends all times while being made present in them all. So we're actually entering into the Paschal mystery when we go to Mass. It doesn't pass away. We're doing it now, every time. And it's the event of the cross and resurrection that abides and draws everything toward life. Because there's only life in God. 
Jesus Christ shatters death. There's no death in him. So that's a really good exclamation of what the Mass is and how we're present in it even today. The Mass contains the Lord's Prayer, his own prayer. No more animal sacrifices are needed like they used to at the temple. No more animal sacrifices are needed. One biblical generation is given by Jesus along with the Holy Spirit to help them figure it out. Jesus began his ministry at about 30 AD when he was 30 years old, and the temple's out of business by 70 AD. That's 40 years. 40 years they get to figure it out. We don't need to do this anymore. We don't need animal sacrifices anymore. He was the perfect lamb once for all. God allows General Titus and his troops of Rome to destroy the temple. It has never, ever, 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 ever been rebuilt in over 2,000 years now. No more animal sacrifices. The Jews can't do Torah anymore. He himself, Jesus Christ, becomes the final animal sacrifice needed. The Agnus Dei, the Lamb of God, once for all. And we're present in that at Mass. That same sacrifice. Revelation says of this Lamb, you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people of God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Isaiah said he was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb led to the slaughter. And when John saw Jesus, he walked and he said, behold, the lamb of God. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and John said, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And Peter, after it was all over, all said and done, he'd already ascended, Pentecost had come, and Peter said, it is the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was destined before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest at the end times for your sake. So we live now in the end times. And so we celebrate over and over this unbloodied sacrifice, but it's the highest form of liturgical worship in the church and is called the mass. And so they want to know, Lord, teach us to pray. And he will tell them this prayer in Aramaic and it's seven petitions. He said to them, when you pray, say, Father, That's the first one. Call him Father. Hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. And forgive our sins. For we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation. I'm going to go through each of those. But it's called the Lord's Prayer because it comes to us from the Lord Jesus, the master and model of our prayer. And the Lord's Prayer is truly the summary of the whole gospel. St. Augustine said, run through all the words of the holy prayers and scriptures, and I do not think you will find anything in them that is not contained and included in the Lord's Prayer. Really, Augustine? Aren't you smart? Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. So was Thomas Aquinas, who said the Lord's Prayer is the most perfect of prayers. It is at the center of the scriptures. Pater Noster, or Our Father. Luke said, Jesus said, when you pray, say this. In Matthew's version, pray then in this way. They're a little bit different, but basically the same. If you go to the Holy Land, you'll go to the church of Pater Noster, our father. It's near the Mount of Olives. And you'll go in and you'll see the Lord's Prayer in many, 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 many languages, including the biblical Greek, the Lord's Prayer in Latin, and hundreds more. Some of the interesting ones, I think Aramaic, Lakota Sioux, 
and Hebrew, they're all there. But there's a grotto there. It's believed to be the place where Jesus taught his disciples the Lord's Prayer. It's very close to where he ascended on the Mount of Olives. There's another chapel there of where Jesus is thought to leave earth. And right there is the last place he stood before he rose to heaven to sit at the right hand of the Father. So he teaches them this prayer at this location. And he says, when you pray, say, Father. Now, Father is very intimate. Regardless of the relationship you've had with your own earthly father, a father-son relationship is a very important one in a person's life. In the Hebrew, father is Abba. It's very intimate. It's very endearing. It's like daddy. The Christian understanding of divine fatherhood is in relation to Jesus, but it's different than the universal metaphor from the Old Testament. The Jewish understanding of father is different. So they didn't know he had a son. The Jews didn't. God is one. Remember, God is one. God is one. They didn't know he had a son. So their connotation of father would be different. Here, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. They thought of God as creator, like in Genesis 1 and 2. He created the world. He created everything. And he said, I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods before me. That's his first commandment. You shall not bow down to any other gods or serve them. For I, the Lord God, am a jealous God. And he, he seems kind of like a mean father a little bit, a stern father. But he creates Adam, his first human son. And that first creation only makes sense in light of the new creation in Christ, the second Adam. So we have the luxury of seeing 2020 in a hermeneutic lens through Jesus Christ. He's the key that unlocks all the Old Testament scripture. But God is the creator and God is the father, but he had not yet revealed that. It'll be Jesus that helps us understand that role. But in the Old Testament, we get some clues. Like you remember Abram and Sarai. They were supposed to have a son. They were supposed to have children as numerous as the stars and sand, but they were barren. And finally, when they have a child, Sarah has an idea that Hagar, Hagar is an Egyptian slave, not a free woman. And it's her son, Ishmael, that Abraham will have as a father, but it's more as a master. They're slaves. They're Egyptian slaves. Sarah is the free woman. Paul will use this allegory in Galatians. Sarah is the free woman, his legal, lawful wife. And he will also be a father to Isaac. And there will be different relationships in the two. The slave woman and her son, Hagar and Ishmael, are ordered to leave. It's a master father. The free woman and her son, Sarah and Isaac, are welcome to stay cherished and loved, protected and adored. He's the son of promise. So we see a different father-son model. And Ishmael will turn into the Islamic faith and Isaac will turn into the Jewish faith and the Christian faith and also the model of the father that uh, God is to the nation Israel. So in the Old Testament, we see God as father to Israel. And sometimes in the scriptures, not very often, but he's called father. Is not he your father who created you? And the Holy Spirit would come on the prophets and they would say things like Hosea said, when Israel was a child, I loved him and called him out of Egypt. I called my son. It was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took him up in my arms with cords of compassion and bands of love. I became to them as one who eases the yoke. I bent down and I fed them. Very fatherly images. Isaiah says, thou art our father. A couple times, O Lord, thou art our father. Jeremiah, my father, thou art the friend of my youth. For I am a father to Israel and Ephraim is my firstborn son. Malachi, if I then am a father, where is my honor? Have we not all one father? Has not one God created all of us? The psalmists often call God father. But then we see 
Also, in the Old Testament, God will say he's the father of an individual. So the father of a nation, corporately, Israel. Also the father of an individual, for instance, David. I shall be his father and he shall be my son. I will not take my steadfast love from him. I will be David's father and he will be my son. He shall be my son, I will be his father. So we see it a few times, but in the New Testament, through the eyes of Jesus Christ, son takes on a whole new meaning. For instance, in Hebrews 1, God has spoken by his son. In many and various ways, God spoke of old to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days that we live in now, in these last days, God had spoken to us by a son whom he appointed the heir of all things through whom he also created the world. He, the son, reflects the glory of God and bears the very stamp of his nature, upholding the universe by his word of power. And when he made purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has obtained is more excellent than theirs. So we learn that God has a son, and he's the refulgence of the Father's glory, the exact imprint. And we know when he rose from the dead what he said to Mary Magdalene, the apostle to the apostles. He told her, don't hold on to me. I haven't ascended to the Father, but go to the brothers and tell them I'm ascending to my Father and to your father. That means they have the same father, and that means they're siblings. To my God and to your God. And Paul got it. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. We all have the same father. We're siblings. Okay, so Luke says, call him father. That's the first thing. Second thing, hallowed be his name. He is God, and we are not. He is God, and we are not. We need to be reminded of that a lot. Because the first lie of Satan was you can be your own God. So he is God, we are not. We hallow his name. What does it mean to hallow, to hallow someone's name? Synonyms. So holy, sacred, consecrated, sanctified, blessed, revered, venerated, honored, worshipped. God is to be hallowed. And then he says, thy kingdom come. Thy kingdom come. Three little words, but they are so packed with meaning. Thy kingdom come. What's that mean? We've been talking in Luke about him ushering in a new kingdom. Satan had a hold on the world. It was his kingdom. He was the prince of the world, but a new king is in town and he's establishing a new kingdom. The prince of this world is in trouble because Jesus has come and you can't serve two kings and you can't live in two kingdoms. And we often try to. We want to have one foot in the world and one foot at Bible study, you know? We, we want to straddle both worlds because it's really hard to be detached from the world and give it all up because it's a pretty good kingdom. St. Matthew will add in his version, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Whatever God wants. That's what Gianna Mola said. Whatever God wants, thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. I'm not the captain of my own destiny. You are. The kingdom of God is in your midst. We hear Luke saying this a lot. The kingdom of God is near. Tell them the kingdom of God is drawing near. When you go out two by two, tell them the kingdom of God is near. We celebrated the feast of Christ the King on the last Sunday of the ordinary time. And we said, Christ is King, right? That means he has a kingdom. Jesus really did establish a kingdom and the kingdom is here on earth. And then it continues eternally in heaven. On earth, his kingdom does have land. And it does have buildings. It's a real kingdom. Land and buildings and canon laws and rules and ministers and ambassadors and citizens and a steward who rules in the absence of the king. It's a kingdom. 
Isaiah 22 last year told us that when the master leaves, when the king leaves, he'll put the servant in charge. I will clothe him with your robe, bind him with your girdle, commit your authority to his hand, and he shall be a father to the inhabitants. And I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open and none shall shut. He shall shut and none shall open. The king's kingdom on earth is called the Catholic Church. It's his kingdom on earth. He defeated Satan, who was a thief and a murderer, and stole it in the very beginning. It is the church that Jesus Christ himself founded, and he promised that the gates of hell would not prevail against it, and he gave Peter the keys in Matthew 16. Well, he went away, but he'll come back. And the key is to stay in the church. Stay in the church. Don't jump ship. The safest place you can be on the face of the earth is in the church. Knowing that he would be returning to his father's eternal kingdom at the time of the ascension, the king, Jesus, gave his steward, Peter, the keys in his absence. But he promised he'd be coming back again one day. What for? He would come again to judge the living and the dead. And of his kingdom, there would be no end. So at that time, it'll go into the eternal kingdom of heaven, and all will be judged. And of his kingdom, there will be no end because it's an eternal kingdom. And this is what Gabriel told Mary when she conceived of his kingdom. This baby you're saying yes to, of his kingdom, there will be no end. So he does have a kingdom. Thy kingdom come. What's always in the center of God's kingdom? Always. Ezekiel saw it. Isaiah saw it. What's in the center of God's kingdom? The true presence of God. Always. There it is in the throne room of heaven, in the eternal kingdom. In the middle is the throne room of God, the throne of God, the true presence of God. And everything else is around it. That's what it was in the desert, in the tabernacle, in the tent, the true presence of God. That's what they carried in the ark, the true presence of God. What's in the ark? The manna, Aaron's rod, and the tablets of the covenant. It's in Hebrews 9, verse 4. And they're carrying the true presence of God, and it's a cloud by day that leads them, and it's a pillar of fire by night that leads them, and it's always there where the true presence of God is. And they march in a specific way. It looks like a cross if you count it out, but the true presence of God goes before them leading the way, always in the middle of the kingdom. They adore it. They worship it. They honor it. They revere it. They carry it on poles. They're not to touch it. It makes waters part when they go through a stream. If you touch it like Uzzah did, you fall and die. It makes people go crazy with joy, dancing before the ark of the Lord, the true presence of God. David, kingly David, strips down to an ephod, and Michal's room is sealed that day because she makes fun of David for worshiping the Lord. When they finally build a temple and put the true presence of God into the temple, what happens? Everyone has to clear out because the glory of the Lord fills the temple, and the priests can't do their job. So the true presence of God is always in the middle of the kingdom. But at the time of Jesus, the true presence of God was no longer in the temple. It was missing. Why? Because at the time of exile, the Babylonian exile, Jeremiah took the ark, he took the tent, he took the ark, and he took the altar, and he hid it, and it got sealed in a mountain in 2 Maccabees 2. So at the time of Jesus, the priests don't care that there's no ark. The priesthood was mostly corrupt and in cahoots with King Herod and the Roman Empire, the land beast and the sea beast from Revelation. Their goal is to trap Jesus, to ensnare him, and to have him executed. They don't care about the true presence of God in the temple. They care about their status quo and looking out for number one and keeping this establishment as is and keeping their power. There was a great corruption in the priesthood. Does that surprise you? It shouldn't because there's nothing new under the sun. 
The true presence of God, Jesus, and the Ark of the Covenant, Mary, walk back into the temple one day. And the true presence of God is back in the temple. And Simeon is filled with the Holy Spirit, and he knows it. And Mary, the Ark of the Covenant, the spouse, the Holy Spirit is there. And Simeon is there, and the Holy Spirit is there. And the true presence of God is baby Jesus, and he's back in the temple. The Ark of the Covenant has been found. It's Mary. To Maccabees 2, when will the ark return? It says the place shall be unknown until God gathers his people together again and shows his mercy. She's the mother of mercy. Our lives. And then the Lord will disclose these things and the glory of the Lord in the cloud will appear. That's the Holy Spirit. The glory of the Lord in the cloud. The Shekinah glory because the true presence of God is back in the temple. Simeon knows it by the power of the Holy Spirit. And Mary knows it. The Father has shown the face of his mercy in this baby. And Simeon says, I can die now. The ark was the holiest object under the old covenant. It had the tablets of the law, the staff of Aaron, the first high priest, and the man of the bread of life that sustained the Israelites for 40 years. And that's what she has. The Holy Spirit, the law of love, the new law of love, the final high priest, the new priesthood in the order of Melchizedek, and the bread of life in her arms. And she's the ark. The ark was God's earthly throne. The Lord was said to sit enthroned upon the cherubim on top of the ark. It's called the mercy seat. Mary is the mercy seat of God's wisdom. And Jesus is wisdom himself, and wisdom comes through Mary. Mary, our mother, the ark, wants to help us get to heaven. She wants to part the waters in our life that keep us from crossing, that get us home safe to the promised land. They would take that ark. They took it around Jericho. Seven times they processed with that ark and the city walls collapsed. Mary, the ark, she wants to help us avoid danger in our life. She wants to help break down walls that keep us from inhabiting God's promised land, the eternal kingdom of heaven. Mary cooperates for our salvation against the enemy in his temporal kingdom. This is not lasting. His is eternal. Mary is the queen mother of a new and eternal kingdom. And every kingdom has a queen mother. She's the new queen of a new creation and the mother of all the living. That's what Eve's name was supposed to be. But Mary's children are truly alive. Eve's were spiritually dead. And every kingdom has a queen mother that can bend the king's ear as Solomon did to Bathsheba. Intercessory power of the queen mother in a new kingdom is Mary. The king said to her, make your request, my mother, for I will not refuse you. So thy kingdom come. This is a new kingdom. Jesus is ushering in a new kingdom. And then the prayer says, give us each day our daily bread. Each day our daily bread. There's two types of bread we need, physical bread and spiritual bread. And he gives them both to us. We can go to mass once a day and receive daily bread, spiritual, and you eat your, your physical bread. Just like he gave them daily bread in the desert. Each day our daily bread, they had to pick up manna. It was fine flake-like thing like hoarfrost on the ground. What is it? The people said. It's the bread which the Lord has given you to eat. Free bread. Free bread was falling from the sky for fallen mankind, but they still had to labor for it. It was free, but they had to work for it. Every day they had to go pick up the manna every single day, gather it every day, every day, pick it up, pick it up, pick it up, pick it up. Leave none of it behind till morning, the Lord said. Some people tried to hoard some and leave, and it got full of worms and foul smelling. When the sun would grow hot, it would melt. On the sixth day, they were told to gather twice as much. And this time it didn't get warmer or melt because they were saving it for Sabbath. So they would not have to labor on the Lord's day when the Lord told them to rest. You can bake it, boil it, whatever you want. 
It was manna, and it was like coriander seed, and it tasted like wafers made with honey. Give us this day our daily bread, and the people of Israel ate that manna for 40 years. That was part one of the Gospel of Luke, chapter 11, on Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. To learn more about Seeking Truth Bible studies, visit SeekingTruth.net. Tune in next time for more Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran.